Hello and welcome everyone. These are Icelandic folklore tales, fairy tales, but we're now on to a different section. So this section is generally the ghost and um, ghouls. Whether they actually are ghost or ghouls, I don't know. Also includes sorcerers as well, because they all come as one, I suppose. But some of them are only short. So I will probably do two at a time sometimes because they are that short. The first one in this section is called Mother in the Pen. Pen. There once was a maid at a farm. She had become pregnant, given birth and exposed her child to die, which was not all that rare in Iceland even when such a deed called for harsh penance, fines or death. Sometime after this happened, a dance of a kind called Vikivaki, formerly quite common in the country, was to be held, and this same girl was invited to it. But because she loved pretty clothes, yet had no garments fine enough for such a gathering, she became very distressed thinking she would have to stay home and miss the dance. One evening, shortly before the dance, the maid was milking ewes in the sheep pen, along with another woman. Then she began complaining to her companion that she had nothing to wear for the vikivaki. As soon as she had spoken, they heard a verse chanted under the wall of the pen. Mother in the pen, pen. Primp and charm the men, men, take my swaddling rags to don, and dance in them, and dance in them. Thinking that she detected in it a barb meant for her, the girl who had exposed her child to die was startled out of her wits by the verse. She remained that way for the rest of her life, unable to speak, and in shock. The end. The next one's called, Give me back my bone, Gunnar. It was customary for people in the countryside to take light with them to the cowshed in winter. Usually the source of light used on such occasions was a simple lamp called cola or pan. It was a thin, shallow kind of vessel with a narrow handle. This narrow handle would be sticking out of it which would fit into a hole in any vertical post in the shed to illuminate the place while people were working there. The caller had a lighted wick and fish or train oil to feed it and was generally carried to the shed already lit in protective covering that was specially made for the purpose and called a light carrier. It was shaped like a gabled house with a sharp angled roof a small opening was left next to the bottom at one end of the light carrier, through which the cola could be slid inside it to be carried to the cowshed. One winter, a girl named Gudrun, who was a dairy maid at the parsonage, having lost or broken her cola, resolved to take a shard of human skull that had been dug up in the graveyard, light a wick in it and use it for a lamp. This was of little consequence through the early 
part of winter and past Christmas, but on New Year's Eve, when the girl had carried her light to the cowshed as usual, she heard a voice calling her through the window, saying, Give me back my bone, Gunner. A good run made short shift of that work, took the piece of skull as it was, light and all, flung it in the manure trough, stomped on it and said, Then come get it, damn you. There is another version of this, which Gudrun only flung the piece of skull in the direction from which the sound had come, but she didn't stomp on it. However, regardless of the story, apparently the girl suffered no harm at all, and she wasn't really that bothered that she'd um, upset a spirit on the grounds. The end. Those are the first two tales, but there's more to come. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Welcome to another tale. Let's see what the ghouls and sorcerers hold next, shall we? And this is called Gone is My Glowing Skin Tone. Once, at a pastorage, a dead person had to be buried and the pastor's hired hands were set to dig the grave. Also in the pastor's household was a spunky young servant girl. When the grave was almost ready, she happened to walk through the churchyard, and just as she was going by, the grave diggers turned up a human bone. It was a thigh bone of enormous size. The girl caught sight of the bone and picked it up. As she was examining it, she remarked, it would have been fun to kiss him when he was alive. Then she put the bone down and walked off. The day passed into evening, when it was dark and the lamps had been lit. The pastor found he needed a book, but unfortunately, he had seemed to have left his book behind. At the altar, he believed, in the church earlier the day. So he asked the girl to go and get it for him, for she had a reputation of being totally unafraid of the dark. The girl had no objection, so she went out to the church, picked up the book from the altar, and returned back down the aisle. When she reached the door, she saw a man of huge stature, sitting in the last pew on the north side. He addressed her, speaking this verse. Gone is my glowing skin tone, good my maid, and faded. Look in my dead eyes, lady, lustrous of old, though cold now. Hacked in half my buckler, and I of yore in war. My beard's uncleaned, but kindly kiss me if you still wish to. The girl, not the least taken aback, went over to the man and kissed him. Then she returned to the house with the book and thought nothing of it. And that's the actual story. There is another version, though, of the story where the girl didn't dare kiss the man when he challenged her, but ran in panic out of the church and never was the same again. All agree, however, 
that the thigh bone was uncovered in a grave, and it must have been that of a somewhat gigantic saga age warrior, the very one who sat in the pew and spoke the verse. And that's the tale. Very interesting indeed. Meant to be of folklore nature, so therefore it's somewhat, somewhat true, they say. stories. This one's called The Wizards of Westerman Islands. When the Black Death was ravaging Iceland, 18 wizards gathered together and formed a partnership. They went out to the Western Islands, their intent to ward off death as long as they could. When they had signs that the epidemic was beginning to abate on the mainland. They wanted to know if anyone had been left alive, agreeing to send one of their own over to investigate. They chose a fellow whose skill with their art was neither the greatest nor the least, but just about average. They took him ashore and told him that if he hadn't returned by Christmas, they would dispatch a sending that would kill him. This was an early advent. The man set off and walked for a long time, ranging far and wide, but nowhere did he see a single person alive. The farmhouses stood open and dead bodies lay scattered about them. Finally, however, he came to a farm where the door was shut. This was a surprise, and he began to entertain the hope that he might find someone alive. He knocked on the door and a young pretty girl came out. As he greeted her, she flung her arms around his neck, crying with joy over seeing another human being, for she had thought she was the only one survivor. She asked the wizard to stay with her, to which he agreed, and they went inside and had a long talk. She inquired where he came from and where he was going. Having told her that, he added that he had to go back before Christmas. But when she pleaded with him to stay as long as possible, he took pity on her and made her the promise. She informed him that nobody was alive in the surrounding area, for she had travelled a week in all directions and found no one. Time passed and Christmas approached. Then the islander wanted to go. But the girl beseeched him to stay, arguing that his companions couldn't be so cruel as to punish him for remaining with her, a poor orphan. He gave in. Christmas Eve arrived, and the man resolved to go, no matter what the girl said. Then, seeing that prayers would no longer avail her, she changed her tune, saying, Do you really think you can reach the islands tonight? Don't you think it's as good to die here with me as somewhere on the way? The man realised that he had run out of time and that he had best stay and await his death right there. The night wore on. 
The man was very dispirited. But the girl was as cheerful as could be, asking if he had any idea how the islanders were getting on. He replied that they had already dispatched the sending to the mainland and it would arrive that same day. The girl sat down on her bed with him and he lay on the other side of it, up against the wall, remarking that he was getting drowsy, a fact that he attributed to the effect of the sending, but soon fell asleep. The girl remained, sitting on the edge of the bed, and kept a watchful eye. From time to time, she would rouse him, so that he could tell her how the sending was proceeding. But the nearer it drew, the deeper his sleep became. Finally, having declared that the sending was now within the boundaries of the farm, he fell so fast asleep that the girl could no longer wake him. At the same time, she noticed that a rust-coloured cloud of vapour was seeping into the house. This vapour approached her very slowly and assumed a human shape. The girl asked, where? Pray, it thought it was going and the sending told her all about its mission, finally asking her to get off the bed, for I can't get past you, it said. The girl answered that it would have to earn her cooperation, and the sending asked Al. By showing her how big it could get, said the girl. The sending agreed and made itself so large that it filled the entire house. Then the girl said, and I want to see how small you can make yourself. The sending told her it could turn into a fly and immediately assumed such a shape. Intending to sneak under the girl's arm and thus get to the man in bed. But instead, it flew right into a hollow sheep's leg that the girl was holding, which she now promptly plugged. After that, she put the leg bone sending and all in her pocket and roused her companion. The man woke up quickly and could hardly believe he was still alive. The girl asked him where the sending was now and he said he had no idea what had become of it. That, said the girl, just confirmed her long-standing suspicion that those island chaps weren't the wizards they were made out to be. The man was very glad and they both thoroughly enjoyed their Christmas. As New Year drew near, however, the man again grew silent. The girl asked what was bothering him, and he replied that the islanders were preparing another sending, and they're all putting their spells together to make it more powerful. It'll be here on New Year's Eve, and there won't be any escape for me. The girl said she wouldn't worry about that so soon, and don't be afraid of those sendings from the islanders, she said. She remained so cheerful that he was ashamed to show any sign of fear to her in order not to make her gloomy. On New Year's Eve, the man said the sending had reached the mainland and it was moving very quickly. He said for it's extremely powerful. The girl told him to come outside with her and so he did. They walked until they came to a thicket there the girl stopped, removed a few twigs and uncovered a slab of stone. 
she left the slab underneath that gaped the entrance to a subterranean chamber. The two of them descended into the chamber, which was dark and terrifying. One dim lamp was there, made out of a human skull, and burning the belly fat of a man. On an earthen bunk next to the light lay an old codger, rather scary to look at. His eyes were all bloodshot and his face so unsightly that it frightened the islander. Something must be wrong, my child, that you should come here, said the old one. It's a long time since I've seen you. What can I do for you? The girl told him all that had come to pass and about the man and the first sending. The old man asked to see the leg bone and the girl gave it to him. With the bone in his hands, the old fellow looked like a different man. He turned the bone this way and that, and the other way, looking at it from every possible angle. He fumbled it with his hands. The girl pleaded, help me now, foster father, and hurry, for the man is beginning to get drowsy. That means the sending will soon be here. The old man then unplugged the leg bone, and the fly came crawling out of it. The old man caressed and patted the fly, saying, Now go meet all the sendings from the islanders and swallow them up. No sooner had he uttered the words than there was a great big crash, and the fly buzzed off, growing so enormous that one jaw brushed the sky while the other swept the ground. In this way, it counted all the sendings from the islands. The man was saved. After that, the pair of them returned to the girl's farm, and there they settled down and married, and multiplied and filled the earth. The end. Well, that's an interesting story. The sendings, by the way, are a spiritual form that come and take the life, whomever they choose, or whoever they sent to demise, I suppose. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone and welcome back. This tale's called Rusty of Irafel. There was a man named Court Thorvardson a member of the parish council, and a farmer of substance. He lived for a long time at Modruvelia in Cujos district, but finally moved to Fleck du Laleur, where he died in 1821. The court was twice married. His first wife was named Inge George, and the second Thordis Johns Dottier. And then the other, which is hardly ever mentioned, but we're going to mention the third. Ingi Bigajog hailed from the north. And there's another one that's called, it says here, Ingbigajog. And it's two names separate. But the other one is Ingibjog, who hailed from the north. And she had many suitors before she met Court, but had refused every single one of them. 
even though caught was their better in most ways, these previous admirers felt abused when he was successful, where they had not been, and they became so vengeful that they paid a northern sorcerer to dispatch ascending against court and his wife. Ascending is an evil spirit that's conjured up to take the lives in which you choose. The sorcerer's choice was a little boy who is said to have died of exposure. Raising him while he was still warm or not yet quite dead, the sorcerer sent him to the newlyweds at Modruvelier with the stipulation that he followed them and their descendants through the ninth generation and do them much harm. Those who saw Rusty, and there were many of them, described him as a wearing grey breeches, a rust-coloured coat, and on his head he had a black wide-brimmed hat with a deep notch or gap in the brim over his left eye. He was named for his coat, and therefore called Rusty. The sorcerer's stipulation was fulfilled. All too well. When Rusty arrived in the south, he put up at Modraville, as intended, and did the couple countless injuries of many sorts, not only by killing their livestock, but also by spoiling their food. No instance was related, however, that Rusty ever killed people directly. At one time, Court and his wife had reared two calves over the winter. The following summer, Rusty chased both of them over a cliff. They were found dead at the foot of the precipice. Another time, Court had a mare that some along grazed with her foal in the home pasture. Late in the summer, the foal was seen running madly around a rock and then falling. On examination, it was found dead. Somehow, it had got its end gut stuck on the rock and had pulled out its own intestines until it fell dead. This was blamed on Rusty. Because Rusty was supposed to have been not quite dead when he was raised, he had to have his full share of food, like all ghosts of that sort, basically like a zombie. Consequently, he had been given his portion like any other person in the household, and this was true both to Modravilla and Irafel, after he lodged himself there to harass Court's son, Magnus. The food intended for him was always put in a secluded place. Rusty had achieved this by completely spoiling everything in Ingebjörg's larder at Modravilla. Sometimes he would sit on the cross beams and splash in the milk trowels with his feet, or else turn them over, and he would throw Skya both at her and all the larder, from rafters to the floor, offling turf and stones into the food, wherever it was, spoil it that way. Because of this, Ingby Jog, the wife, resolved to apportion him a full meal twice a day after which he pretty much stopped spoiling the food. Once, however, it happened that Rusty's evening meal was forgotten. The following morning he was found in the larder, straddling the rims of two tons of skir, and 
one foot in each. At once, busily churning the skirt with his feet and flinging it about with his hands. After that, great care was taken not to forget his meals. A food, however, wasn't all rusty needed. He also had to rest like anybody else. So after he attached himself to Magnus Courtson at Irafel, the story goes that one empty bed always had to be left for him, opposite Magnus's own, and no one had better lie in it but Rusty alone. One day at roundup time, many people had gathered at Irafel to stay overnight. Later in the evening, a boy arrived and asked to be put up too. Magnus told him he was welcome to stay but said he had no place for him to sleep except the floor, unless he wanted to lie in the bed opposite his own, which the boy gratefully accepted. When he lay down to rest that night, the boy fell asleep soon enough, but barely had he done so when something weighed on him so dreadfully that it made his throat rattle. He woke up with a start, and for the rest of the night he couldn't sleep a wink because of similar attacks. The following day, the weather was so bad that the guests couldn't leave, and they stayed overnight at the Irafel. That evening, some boys who lived at the farm and knew Rusty, having frequently engaged him in mudslinging, got together and placed numerous knives, points up, all around the bed. That night, the visiting boy slept soundly, and it was attributed to the fact that Rusty hadn't dared come near him for fear of the knives. After Court's death in 1821, Rusty at first followed his eldest son, Magnus, as previously mentioned. Magnus farmed at Hirafel most of his life, and it was because Rusty stayed there so long that he became known as Rusty of Hirafel. It is said that once in a good fishing year, Magnus went down to but since he had secured no permanent place on any boat, he went from one to another, being allowed to place here and there on a daily basis. On two consecutive days, he got a boat space with farmer Sigurda, but on the second day, Sigurda's crew began to notice that Magnus, wherever he happened to be, was never alone. The third morning, when Magnus came as usual to where he would board Sigurda's boat, he was already afloat. The crew spoke up about Rusty. According to the story, they had seen something akin to a rust-coloured clue of yarn or a piece of horse dung roll aboard the boat along with Magnus. Hearing this, Sigurda, who was considered a cautious, intelligent man, ordered Magnus off the boat and refused to carry him any longer. Either because he himself had become aware of Rusty or he didn't want his crew to look askance as Magnus and blame him for bringing them bad luck should anything go wrong. At one time, Magnus of Irafel had left a copy of Halgrimir, Petterson's Passion Hymns with farmer Asgir Finbogarsen of Bradride, who was supposed to bind it for him. One night, Asgir was not at home, and his wife waited for him. At first, she kept herself busy, doing some chores, but later went to bed, 
waiting there by light until Asgir returned home. Then he too went to bed and they put out the light. Right afterward, she saw a boy enter the room, sit down on a chair beside the bed and put his arm in over the bedboard. She happened to be sleeping on the outer side of the bed and she found the arm so heavy and oppressive that she called out asking if it was Johannes, their foster son. But there was no answer. No telling who he was. She repeated the question and then told the visitor, who saw up, opened his eyes up wide so they glinted in morning, shining in through the window. But no answer. She then saw it dashed out through the locked door. A thunderous crash followed, and at the same moment, a shelf on the other side of the room, diagonally opposite the bed, fell down. The shelf had many hymn books, among them the copy of the Passion Hymns that Esgir had taken from Magnus to bind. In addition, the shelf had several pieces of china, which, as to be expected, were smashed to tiny shards that flew all over the floor. Mistress Sigrida then relit the lamp and had someone sit up with her the rest of the night. She got little sleep. In the early hours next morning, Magnus came to Bradride, asking for the book that had been on the shelf, and he was informed what a pleasant companion he had. Rusty also attached himself to Magnus's only son, Gudmundur, a one winter farmer Asgir, now living at Lambastadir, near Reykjavik, sent his son, named Thvalda, to be tutored by the pastor of Renvelivir in the Kojos district. The boy returned home shortly before Christmas in order to spend the holidays with his parents and it was agreed that he would be accompanied back after Christmas when someone from Kajos district was travelling that way. One night at Lambastadir, Thorvaldo and his mother were sleeping by themselves in the Badstaffa. It was late and the lights were out. Suddenly the boy's mother fell ill and asked him to relight the lamp. When he had done so, she asked him to get her a drink of water and to take the lamp with him so he wouldn't bump into anything. Thorvaldo was only twelve at the time, but he was unafraid of the dark and felt he didn't need the lamp. So, when he went for the water, he left the light in the bustoffa, but kept the door open so the glow from it would be thrown into the kitchen. When Thorvaldor turned round, having filled a glass of water, he saw a small boy step from the foyer and onto the kitchen floor. The doors had not been locked in the evening. The boy planted himself there in a glow of light, his head bare but wide-brimmed hat in his hand, and wearing a rust-coloured coat. He stared at Thorvaldo with his big eyes, a roguish grin on his face, and for a while they gazed at each other that way. Thorvaldo said, afterwards, that he had not been afraid of him, but observed him closely, 
and he recalled that the boy had seemed all airy in the face. It was only when Thorvaldo turned away that he gave a start so the water splashed from the glass, for at that moment a dog that had been lying in the bus stopper jumped up with a ferocious bark, dashed through the kitchen and ran out into the home field. Other dogs joined in and they kept barking for a long time. The next day two men from Kozha's district came from another place for for Alvador, and one of them happened to be Good Munda Magnuson. It was then concluded that it must have been Rusty Aviraphel that Thorvaldor had seen the previous night. The end. I have no idea what that story is about. It's first time I've read it, but it's very confusing. And it's really old as well. It's like 1600s, I think. And from Iceland. But from what I can gather, it's a family curse and it just carries on through the generations. And it's like having a goblin or a naughty brownie attached to you, I suppose. But this one's capable of some really bad stuff. Anyway, guys, thanks for listening and many blessings. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We are now on Tales of Zemundo the Learned. Number one, the Black School. In olden times, there was a school over the seas called the Black School, where young men studied sorcery and all kinds of ancient lore. This school was housed in an underground bunker, very sturdily built. It had no windows, so it was pitch dark inside. Nor was there any teacher. Everything the students learnt, every single thing, they did get from books written in fiery red letters, which could be read in the dark. Those who enrolled were forbidden to go out in the open air or to see the light of day while attending the school. And to complete their studies, they had to remain there for three or seven years. A grey, hairy hand would come through the wall every day, delivering meals to the students. The master of the school reserved the right to keep the one graduate each year who was the last to leave. And since it was common knowledge that the master was the devil himself, everyone wanted to avoid being the last to exit. Once there were three Icelanders, together at the black school, Seymundo the Learned, Kalfur Arneson and Halfden L. Johnson, or Einerson, later priest at Felin Slethulid. They were all graduating at the same time, and Simunda offered to be the last one himself in a large overcoat, but let the sleeves hang empty, and did not button the coat. A flight of stairs led out of the schoolhouse. As Simunda was walking up the stairs, the devil grabbed him by the coat and said, You're mine. Simunda then let loose the coat and ran out, leaving old Nick with the garment to learn in his hands. 
The iron door creaked and rumbled on its hinges and banged shut so tightly behind Samunda that his heel bones were hurt. A close call, he remarked, which has since been a popular phrase. In this way, Samunda got away from the black school along with his companions. Another version has it that when Samunda walked up the stairs and reached the door of the black school, the sun shone in, casting his shadow on the inside wall. And when the devil attempted to see Samundo, he said, I'm not the last one. Don't you see the one behind me? The devil reached out for the shadow, thinking it was a man, while Samundo got out and the door slammed shut on his heels. But from that time on, he was a man without a shadow, for the devil never let go of it. The End That's the first tale of Samundo. The second tale of Samunda the Learned, how Samunda got his benefice. When Samunda, Kalpa, and Halfdan left the black school, the benefice of Odi was vacant, and they all applied to the king for it. The king knew full well with whom he was dealing, and told them that whoever could get there first would have the Odi. Samunda immediately went to summon old Nick, saying, Swim with me on your back out to Iceland, and if you can get me a shot without wetting my coattails, my soul is yours. Old Nick agreed to do this. A quick changed into a seal and set off with Samunda on his back. On the way, Samunda continuously read in his salta, in a short time, they were close to land in Iceland. Then, Samunda struck the seal over the head with the salter. So the creature sank. Samunda was temporarily submerged, but he did swim ashore. And that's how the devil lost his bargain. And Samunda got the Ode. Samunda the Learned, number three, gathering the hay. The same under the learned once had a considerable quantity of dry hay in the field while the outlook was for rain. So he asked all his working people to pull together and try to at least save the hay. At that time, there was one very old woman in his household at Odi, and Samunda went to her too, asking she would try to limp out to the field and rake together whatever scattered remnants of hay the others left. She said she would. Then she took her rake, tying onto the end of it a bonnet of her head, and shuffled out to the field. To Samunda, she said, he had better stay in the yard and stack the hay, for his field hands wouldn't be long, binding it and bringing it home. The cleric said he would do just that. It would be for the best. The old one stuck the end of her rake under each of the bundles of hay, saying, Up to the yard to Samunda with you. And the bundles went there straight away. Samunda then told old Nick and his imps to make haste. And in a short time, all the hay was home in the yard, safe from the rain. 
Afterwards, Zaymunda said to the crone, I guess you know a thing at all, my dear old Thor Hildor. It isn't much now, she replied. I've forgotten most of what I knew in my younger days. The end of that one. Then we go on to number four. The Imp Whistle. Zaymunda the Learned had a whistle possessed of a very peculiar quality. Whenever it was blown, one or more imps would appear, ask him what they should do. One day, Zaymunda left the whistle under the pillow in his bed, where he always kept it at night. In the evening, he told his maid to prepare his bed as usual, but warned her that if she came across anything out of the ordinary, she should not touch it, but leave it be. The girl began to prepare the bed. When she saw the whistle, she couldn't help her curiosity. She picked it up at once, examined it closely, and finally blew it, and an imp immediately appeared to her, asking, What do you wish to, with me? What do you wish me to do? The girl was startled, but she acted unperturbed. It so happened that ten of Simunda's weathers had been slaughtered earlier in the day, and all the skins were lying outside. The girl told the imp that he should count every air on all the skins, and if he could finish before she made the bed, he could have her. The imp went out and began counting, while the girl hastened to make the bed. When she'd finished, the imp still had one more skin to go, so he lost on the bargain. Samunda later asked the girl if she had found anything in his bed, and she told him the truth, and Samunda was quite pleased with her presence of mind. The next is called, and this is number five, The Imp and the Cowshed. Samunda the Learned once had a cowshed and a cowherd. We felt swore far too much and he often admonished him about it. He told the cowherd in the cowshed that the devil and all his imps fed, fed on the oaths and the bad language people used. Well, said the cowherd, if I only knew that old Nick would starve because of it, I would never utter a wicked word. Well, soon see how serious you are, we shall, said Simondo and he placed an imp in the cow barn. The cowherd detested his new border, because the imp did everything he could to harm and irk him, and it was just barely that the poor fellow could keep from cursing. Yet some time passed, during which he was very nearly successful, and he noticed that the imp grew thinner every day. This pleased the cowherd very much, and he soon stopped swearing altogether. Then one morning, he came to the cow barn to find it in total shambles, all the cows all tied together by their tails, and there were quite a few of them. Seeing this, the cowherd turned on the imp, who was lying there in his stall, half dead with misery, and poured out his fury with dreadful oaths and curses, ugly, ugly curses. To his distress, however, the imp, suddenly began to revive, and in no time became so plump and portly as to virgin obesity. Then the cowherd controlled himself and stopped cursing. The truth of the Reverend St. Munda's words had been driven home to him, 
He never swore or uttered a bad word after that. As for the imp who was supposed to feed on his profanities, well, he soon went the way of all flesh. You and I had better follow the cowherd's example. The next is the last tale of Save Munda, and it's number six, and it's Old Nick's Pact with the Weaver. With Save Munda the Learned at Ode, there once was a maid who wove most of the fabric even in the household. One day, as she was at the loom, a man came to her and struck up a conversation. He asked if being in service at Ode wasn't pretty bad. She said it wasn't too bad, although once in a while the food was rather skimpy because so much went to feed visitors and wayfarers. You go hungry once in a while then? the man asked. Not as a rule, replied the maid. Wouldn't it be good though if you found a buttered cake each evening by your bedside? She said she wouldn't mind it. He told her he would see to it that the cake and butter be at her bedside every evening and she would have to promise him in return never to pray for Samunda for if she did she wouldn't get the cake and butter. She said she would do as he asked. For a long time that winter she never prayed for Samunda. Even when he sneezed and all the other people present bid God bless him she never did. Consequently there was always a butter cake at her bedside every evening. Once she was weaving, and Samunda came by and began talking to her. And when he had done so for a spell, he had a severe sneezing fit. She kept silent, acting as if she heard nothing. After some time he started sneezing, still more vehemently. Then the poor girl couldn't stand it any longer, and she said, Don't sneeze your sense away, Reverend Samunda. God help you. The Reverend Samunda immediately stopped sneezing and said, I don't think you'll have your cake and butter tonight. And from then on, she never got cake and butter from old Nick again. The end. And as you can tell, Samunda, the learned, was a friend of old Nick's, which is the devil. And clearly they had uh, some sort of thing going off between them where they would place bets and this and that. That's what all that's about, basically. Always outsmarting the devil, same under. That's what that's about. Thank you for listening and many blessings.